Welcome back, everyone, to The Beasts of Tarzan by Edgar Rice Burroughs. Today, chapters 11 and 12. This is your host, John Hagedorn. It's great to be with you today. And now, chapter 11, Tambudza. Tarzan scooped a shallow grave for the Kincaid's cook, beneath whose repulsive exterior had beaten the heart of a chivalrous gentleman. That was all he could do in the cruel jungle for the man who had given his life in the service of his little son and his wife. Then Tarzan took up again the pursuit of Rokoff. Now that he was positive that the woman ahead of him was indeed Jane, and that she had again fallen into the hands of the Russian, it seemed that with all the incredible speed of his fleet and agile muscles he moved at but a snail's pace. It was with difficulty that he kept the trail, for there were many paths through the jungle at this point, crossing and crisscrossing, forking and branching in all directions, and over them all had passed natives innumerable, coming and going. The spoor of the white men was obliterated by that of the native carriers who had followed them, and over all was the spoor of other natives and of wild beasts. It was most perplexing, yet Tarzan kept on assiduously, checking his sense of sight against his sense of smell, that he might more surely keep to the right trail. But, with all his care, night found him at a point where he was positive that he was on the wrong trail entirely. He knew that the pack would follow his spoor, and so he had been careful to make it as distinct as possible, brushing often against the vines and creepers that walled the jungle path, and in other ways leaving his scent spore plainly discernible. As darkness settled, a heavy rain set in, and there was nothing for the baffled ape-man to do but wait in the partial shelter of a huge tree until morning. But the coming of dawn brought no cessation of the torrential downpour. For a week the sun was obscured by heavy clouds, while violent rain and windstorms obliterated the last remnants of the spoor Tarzan constantly, though vainly, sought. During all this time he saw no signs of natives, nor of his own pack, the members of which he feared had lost his trail during the terrific storm. As the country was strange to him, he had been unable to judge his course accurately, since he had had neither sun by day nor moon nor stars by night to guide him. When the sun at last broke through the clouds in the forenoon of the seventh day, it looked down upon an almost frantic ape-man. For the first time in his life, Tarzan of the apes had been lost in the jungle. That the experience should have befallen him at such a time seemed cruel beyond expression. Somewhere in this savage land his wife and son lay in the clutches of the arch-fiend Rokoff. What hideous trials might they not have undergone during those seven awful days that nature had thwarted him in his endeavors to locate them? Tarzan knew the Russian, in whose power they were, so well that he could not doubt but that the man, filled with rage that Jane had once escaped him, and knowing that Tarzan might be close upon his trail, would wreak without further loss of time whatever vengeance his polluted mind might be able to conceive. But now that the sun shone once more, the ape-man was still at a loss as to what direction to take. He knew that Rokoff had left the river in pursuit of Anderson, but whether he would continue inland or return to the Ugambi, was the question. The ape-man had seen that the river at the point he had left it was growing narrow and swift, so that he judged it could not be navigable even for canoes to any great distance farther toward its source. However, if Rokoff had not returned to the river, in what direction had he proceeded? From the direction of Anderson's flight with Jane and the child, Tarzan was convinced that the man had purposed attempting the tremendous feat of crossing the continent to Zanzibar, but whether Rokoff would dare so dangerous a journey or not was a question. Fear might drive him to the attempt now that he knew the manner of the horrible pack that was upon his trail, 
and that Tarzan of the apes was following him to wreak upon him the vengeance that he deserved. At last the ape-man determined to continue toward the northeast in the general direction of German East Africa until he came upon natives from whom he might gain information as to Rokoff's whereabouts. The second day following the cessation of the rain, Tarzan came upon a native village, the inhabitants of which fled into the bush the instant their eyes fell upon him. Tarzan, not to be thwarted in any such manner as this, pursued them, and after a brief chase, caught up with the young warrior. The fellow was so badly frightened that he was unable to defend himself, dropping his weapons and falling upon the ground, wide-eyed and screaming as he gazed upon his captor. It was with considerable difficulty that the ape-man quieted the fellow's fears sufficiently to obtain a coherent statement from him as to the cause of his uncalled-for terror. From him Tarzan learned, by dint of much coaxing, that a party of whites had passed through the village several days before. These men had told him of a terrible white devil that pursued them, warning the natives against it and the frightful pack of demons that accompanied it. The native had recognized Tarzan as the white devil from the description given by the whites and their black servants. Behind him he had expected to see a horde of demons disguised as apes and panthers. In this Tarzan saw the cunning hand of Rokoff. The Russian was attempting to make travel as difficult as possible for him by turning the natives against him in superstitious fear. The native further told Tarzan that the white man who had led the recent expedition had promised them a fabulous reward if they would kill the white devil. This they had fully intended doing should the opportunity present itself, but the moment they had seen Tarzan their blood had turned to water, as the porters of the white man had told him would be the case. Finding the ape-man made no attempt to harm him, the native at last recovered his grasp upon his courage, and, at Tarzan's suggestion, accompanied the white devil back to the village, calling as he went for his fellows to return also, as the white devil has promised to do you no harm if you come back right away and answer his questions. One by one the natives straggled into the village, but that their fears were not entirely allayed was evident from the amount of white that showed about the eyes and the majority of them as they cast constant and apprehensive sidelong glances at the ape-man. The chief was among the first to return to the village, and as it was he that Tarzan was most anxious to interview, he lost no time in entering into a palaver with him. The fellow was short and stout, with an unusually low and degraded countenance and ape-like arms. His whole expression denoted deceitfulness. Only the superstitious terror engendered in him by the stories poured into his ears by the whites and blacks of the Russian's party kept him from leaping upon Tarzan with his warriors and slaying him forthwith, for he and his people were inveterate man-eaters. But the fear that he might indeed be a devil, and that out there in the jungle behind him his fierce demons waited to do his bidding, kept Magambozan from putting his desires into action. Tarzan questioned the fellow closely, and by comparing his statements with those of the young warrior he had first talked with, he learned that Rokoff and his safari were in terror-stricken retreat in the direction of the Far East coast. Many of the Russians' porters had already deserted him. In that very village he had hanged five for theft and attempted desertion. Judging, however, from what the Waganwazan had learned from those of the Russians' blacks who were not too far gone in terror of the brutal Rokoff to fear even to speak of their plans, it was apparent that he would not travel any great distance before the last of his porters, cooks, tent boys, gun-bearers, Ascari, and even his headman would have turned back into the brush, leaving him to the mercy of the merciless jungle. Waganwazan denied that there had been any white woman or child with the party of whites, but even as he spoke, Tarzan was convinced that he lied. Several times the ape-man approached the subject from different angles, 
but never was he successful in surprising the wily cannibal into a direct contradiction of his original statement that there had been no women or children with the party. Tarzan demanded food of the chief, and after considerable haggling on the part of the monarch, succeeded in obtaining a meal. He then tried to draw out others of the tribe, especially the young man whom he had captured in the bush, but Magamuzam's presence sealed their lips. At last, convinced that these people knew a great deal more than they had told him concerning the whereabouts of the Russian and the fate of Jane and the child, Tarzan determined to remain overnight among them in the hope of discovering something further of importance. When he had stated his decision to the chief, he was rather surprised to note the sudden change in the fellow's attitude toward him. From apparent dislike and suspicion, Maganwazan became a most eager and solicitous host. Nothing would do but that the ape-man should occupy the best hut in the village, from which Maganwazam's oldest wife was forthwith summarily ejected, while the chief took up his temporary abode in the hut of one of his younger consorts. Had Tarzan chanced to recall the fact that a princely reward had been offered the blacks if they should succeed in killing him, he might have more quickly interpreted Maganwazam's sudden change in front. To have the white giant sleeping peacefully in one of his own huts would greatly facilitate the matter of earning the reward, and so the chief was urgent in his suggestions that Tarzan, doubtless being very much fatigued after his travels, should retire early to the comforts of the anything-but-inviting palace. As much as the ape-man detested the thought of sleeping within a native hut, he had determined to do so this night, on the chance that he might be able to induce one of the younger men to sit and chat with him before the fire that burned in the center of the smoke-filled dwelling, and from him draw the truths he sought. So Tarzan accepted the invitation of old Magambozom, insisting, however, that he much preferred sharing a hut with some of the younger men rather than driving the chief's old wife out in the cold. The toothless old hag grinned her appreciation of this suggestion, and as the plan still better suited the chief's scheme, in that it would permit him to surround Tarzan with a gang of picked assassins, he readily assented, so that presently Tarzan had been installed in a hut close to the village gate. As there was to be a dance that night in honor of a band of recently returned hunters, Tarzan was left alone in the hut, the young men, as Magamwazam explained, having to take part in the festivities. As soon as the ape-man was safely installed in the trap, Magamwazam called about on the young warriors whom he had selected to spend the night with the white devil. None of them was overly enthusiastic about the plan, since deep in their superstitious hearts lay an exaggerated fear of the strange white giant. But the word of Magamwazam was law among his people, so no one dared refuse the duty he was called upon to perform. As Magamwazam unfolded his plan in whispers to the savages squatting about him, the old, toothless hag, to whom Tarzan had saved her hut for the night, hovered about the conspirators ostensibly to replenish the supply of firewood for the blaze about which the men sat, but really to drink in as much of their conversation as possible. Tarzan had slept for perhaps an hour or two despite the savage din of the revelers when his keen senses came suddenly alert to a suspiciously stealthy movement in the hut in which he lay. The fire had died down to a little heap of glowing embers, which accentuated rather than relieved the darkness that shrouded the interior of the evil-smelling dwelling. Yet the trained senses of the ape-man warned him of another presence creeping almost silently toward him through the gloom. He doubted that it was one of his hutmates returning from the festivities, for he still heard the wild cries of the dancers and the din of the tom-toms in the village street without. Who could it be that took such pains to conceal his approach? As the presence came within reach of him, the ape-man bounded lightly to the opposite side of the hut, his spear poised ready at his side. "'Who is it?' he asked, that creeps upon Tarzan of the apes like a hungry lion out of the darkness.' 
"'Silence, Bwana,' replied an old cracked voice. "'It is Tambudza, she whose hut you would not take, "'and thus drive an old woman out into the cold night.' "'And what does Tambudza want of Tarzan of the Apes?' asked the ape-man. "'You are kind to me, to whom none is now kind, "'and I have come to warn you in payment of your kindness.' "'answered the old hag. "'Warn me? Of what? "'Maganwazam has chosen the young men "'who are to sleep in the hut with you,' "'replied Tambuza. "'I was near as he talked with them, "'and heard him issuing his instructions to them. "'When the dancers run well into the morning, "'they are to come to the hut. "'If you are awake, "'they are to pretend that they have come to sleep. "'But if you sleep, "'it is Maganwazam's command that you be killed. "'If you are not then asleep,' "'They will then wait quietly beside you until you do sleep, "'and then they will all fall upon you together and slay you. "'Maganwazam is determined to win the reward the white man has offered.' "'I had forgotten the reward,' said Tarzan, half to himself, "'and then he added, "'How may Maganwazam hope to collect the reward "'now that the white men who are my enemies have left this country "'and gone he knows not where?' "'Oh, they have not gone far,' replied Tambutza. "'Magamwazam knows where they camp. "'His runners could quickly overtake them. "'They move slowly.' "'Where are they?' asked Tarzan. "'Do you wish to come to them?' asked Tambutza in way of reply. "'Tarzan nodded. "'I cannot tell you where they lie "'so that you could come to the place yourself. "'But I could lead you to them, Buana.' "'In their interest in the conversation, "'neither of the speakers had noticed a little figure "'which crept into the darkness of the hut behind them, nor did they see it when it slunk noiselessly out again. It was little Bulalu, the chief's son by one of his younger wives, a vindictive, degenerate little rascal who hated Tambutsa, and was ever seeking opportunities to spy upon her and report her slightest breach of custom to his father. "'Come, then,' said Tarzan quickly. "'Let us be on our way.' This Bulalu did not hear, for he was already legging it up to the village street to where his hideous sire guzzled native beer and watched the evolutions of the frantic dancers leaping high in the air and cavorting wildly in their hysterical capers. So it happened that as Tarzan and Tambutsa sneaked warily from the village and melted into the Stygian darkness of the jungle, two lithe runners took their way in the same direction, though by another trail. When they had come sufficiently far from the village to make it safe for them to speak above a whisper, Tarzan asked the old woman if he had seen aught of a white woman and a little child. "'Yes, Bwana, replied Tambutsa. "'There was a woman with them, and a little child. "'It died here in our village of the fever, and they buried it.'" We'll return with Chapter 12, right after these sponsor messages. Hi, everyone. The holiday season is upon us, and I'll be glued to the telly for BritBox on many a night. I've already shared with you the fact that I keep up with Father Brown and Poirot at BritBox. I also check out their new stuff, like the new series Archie, which tells the story of Archie Leach, otherwise known to millions of filmgoers as Cary Grant. This story comes from his daughter Jennifer Grant and ex-wife Diane Cannon. It's a series. The performance of Jason Isaacs, who plays Cary Grant, is top-notch. I highly recommend it. You can only find it on my favorite TV, BritBox. Sign up to BritBox today to stream Archie and other fan favorites today from any device. I have a special limited-time offer for my U.S. and Canadian listeners. Get 50% off your first month when you sign up for a monthly plan, but only if you go to BritBox.com and use my promo code 1001stories at checkout. 
Don't wait. Get 50% off your first month. Just use promo code 1001stories at BritBox.com. Try it. You'll like it. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. And now Chapter 12, A Black Scoundrel. When Jane Clayton regained consciousness, she saw Anderson standing over her, holding the baby in his arms. As her eyes rested upon them, an expression of misery and horror overspread her countenance. "'But is the matter?' he asked. "'You been sick?' "'Where is my baby?' she cried, ignoring his questions. Anderson held out the chubby infant, but she shook her head. "'It is not mine,' she said. "'You knew that it was not mine. You're a devil like the Russian.' Anderson's blue eyes stretched in surprise. "'Not yours?' he exclaimed. "'You told me the kid aboard the King Kate banned your kid.' "'Not this one,' replied Jane dully. "'The other. Where is the other?' "'There must have been two. "'I did not know about this one.' "'There wasn't no other kid. "'I tanked this man yours. "'I'm very sorry.' "'Anderson fidgeted about, "'standing first on one foot "'and then upon the other. "'It was perfectly evident to Jane "'that he was honest in his protestations "'of ignorance of the true identity of the child. "'Presently the baby commenced to crow "'and bounce up and down in the Swede's arms, "'at the same time leaning forward "'with little hands outreaching toward the young woman.' She could not withstand the appeal, and with a low cry she sprang to her feet and gathered the baby to her breast. For a few minutes she wept silently, her face buried in the baby's soiled little dress. The first shock of disappointment that the tiny thing had not been her beloved Jack was giving way to a great hope that after all some miracle had occurred to snatch her baby from Rokoff's hands at the last instant before the Kincaid sailed from England. Then, too, there was the mute appeal of this wee waif alone and unloved in the midst of the horrors of the savage jungle. It was this thought more than any other that had sent her mother's heart out to the innocent babe, while she still suffered from disappointment that she had been deceived in its identity. "'Have you no idea whose child this is?' she asked Anderson. The man shook his head. "'Not now,' he said. "'If he ain't ban your kid, I don't know whose kid he do ban. Rokoff said it was yours.' "'I tank he tanks so, too. "'What do we do with it now? "'I can't go back to the Kincaid. "'Rokoff would have me shot, "'but you can go back. "'I take you to the sea, "'and then some of these black men "'will take you to the ship, eh?' "'No, no,' cried Jane. "'Not for the world. "'I would rather die than fall into the hands "'of that man again. "'No, let us go on and take this poor little creature with us. "'If God is willing, "'we shall be saved in one way or another.' so they again took up their flight to the wilderness, taking with them a half-dozen of the Mosulas to carry provisions and the tents that Anderson had smuggled aboard the small boat in preparation for the attempted escape. The days and nights of torture that the young woman suffered were so merged into one long, unbroken nightmare of hideousness that she soon lost all track of time. Whether they had been wandering for days or years, she couldn't tell. The one bright spot in that eternity of fear and suffering 
was the little child whose tiny hands had long since fastened their softly groping fingers firmly about her heart. In a way, the little thing took the place and filled the aching void that the theft of her own baby had left. It could never be the same, of course, but yet, day by day, she found her mother love, enveloping the waif more closely until she sometimes sat with closed eyes lost in the sweet imagining that the little bundle of humanity at her breast was truly her own. For some time their progress inland was extremely slow. Word came to them from time to time, through natives passing from the coast on hunting excursions, that Rokoff had not yet guessed the direction of their flight. This, and the desire to make the journey as light as possible for the gently bred woman, kept Anderson to a slow advance of short and easy marches with many rests. The Swede insisted upon carrying the child while they traveled, and in countless other ways did what he could to help Jane Clayton conserve her strength. He had been terribly chagrined on discovering the mistake he had made in the identity of the baby, but once the young woman became convinced that his motives were truly chivalrous, she would not permit him longer to abrade himself for the error that he could not by any means have avoided. At the close of each day's march, Anderson saw to the erection of a comfortable shelter for Jane and the child. Her tent was always pitched in the most favorable location. The thorn boom around it was the strongest and most impregnable that the Musula could construct. Her food was the best that their limited stores and the rifle of the Swede could provide, but the thing that touched her heart the closest was the gentle consideration and courtesy which the man always accorded her. That such nobility of character could lie beneath so repulsive an exterior never ceased to be a source of wonder and amazement to her, until at last the innate chivalry of the man and his unfailing kindliness and sympathy transformed his appearance insofar as Jane was concerned until she saw only the sweetness of his character mirrored in his countenance. They had commenced to make a little better progress when word reached them that Rokoff was but a few marches behind them and that he had at last discovered the direction of their flight. It was then that Anderson took to the river, purchasing a canoe from a chief whose village lay a short distance from the Ugambi upon the bank of the tributary. Thereafter the little party of fugitives fled up the broad Ugambi, and so rapid had their flight become that they no longer received word of their pursuers. At the end of canoe navigation upon the river, they abandoned their canoe and took to the jungle. Here progress became at once arduous, slow, and dangerous. The second day after leaving the Ugambi, the baby fell ill with fever. Anderson knew what the outcome must be, but he had at the heart to tell Jane Clayton the truth, for he had seen that the young woman had come to love the child almost as passionately as though it had been her own flesh and blood. As the baby's condition precluded further advance, Anderson withdrew a little from the main trail he had been following and built a camp in a natural clearing on the bank of a little river. Here Jane devoted her every moment to caring for the tiny sufferer as though her sorrow and anxiety were not all that she could bear. A further blow came with the sudden announcement of one of the Musala porters who had been foraging in the jungle adjacent to where Rokoff and his party were camped quite close to them, and were evidently upon their trail to this little nook which had all thought so excellent a hiding place. This information could mean but one thing, and that they must break camp and fly onward regardless of the baby's condition. Jane Clayton knew the traits of the Russian well enough to be positive that he would separate her from the child the moment that he recaptured them, and she knew that separation would mean the immediate death of the baby. As they stumbled forward through the tangled vegetation along an old and almost overgrown game trail, the Mosula porters deserted them one by one. 
The men had been staunch enough in their devotion and loyalty as long as they were in no danger of being overtaken by the Russian and his party. They had heard, however, so much of the atrocious disposition of Rokoff that they had grown to hold him in mortal terror. And now that they knew he was close upon them, their timid hearts would mortify them no longer, and as quickly as possible they deserted the three whites. Yet on and on went Anderson and the girl. The Swede went ahead to hew away through the brush where the path was entirely overgrown, so that on this march it was necessary that the young woman carry the child. All day they marched. Late in the afternoon they realized that they had failed. Close behind them they heard the noise of a large safari advancing along the trail which they had cleared for their pursuers. When it became quite evident that they must be overtaken in a short time, Anderson hid Jane behind a large tree, covering her and the child with brush. "'There is a village about a mile farther on,' he said to her. "'The Mosula told me its location before they deserted us. "'I'd try to lead the Russian off your trail. "'Then you go on to the village. "'I thank the chief been friendly to white men. "'The Mosula tell me he been. "'Anyhow, that was all we can do. "'After a while, you get chief to take you down "'by the Mosula village at the sea again.' "'and after a while a ship is sure to put into the mouth of Ugambi. "'Then you be all right. "'Good-bye, and good luck to you, lady.' "'But where are you going, Sven?' asked Jane. "'Why can't you hide here and go back to the sea with me?' "'I got to tell the Russian you been dead, "'so that he don't look for you no more.' "'And Anderson grinned. "'Why can't you join me after you've told him that?' "'insisted the girl. "'Anderson shook his head. I don't think I join anybody any more after I tell the Russian you been dead, he said. You don't mean that you think he'll kill you, asked Jane, and yet in her heart she knew that was exactly what the great scoundrel would do in revenge for his having been thwarted by the Swede. Anderson did not reply other than to warn her to silence and point along toward the path which they had just come. I don't care, whispered Jane Clayton. "'I shall not let you die to save me if I could prevent it in any way. "'Give me your revolver. I can use that, "'and together we may be able to hold them off "'until we can find some means of escape.' "'It won't work, lady,' replied Anderson. "'They would only get us both, "'and then I couldn't do you no good at all. "'Think of the kid, lady, "'and what they would be for both to fall into Rokoff's hands again. "'For his sake, you must do it, I say. "'Here,' "'Take my rifle and ammunition. "'You may need them.' "'He shoved the gun and bandolier "'into the shelter beside Jane, "'and then he was gone. "'She watched him as he returned "'along the path to meet the oncoming safari "'of the Russian. "'Soon a turn in the trail hid him from view. "'Her first impulse was to follow. "'With the rifle she might be of assistance to him, "'and further, she could not bear the terrible thought "'of being left alone at the mercy of a fearful jungle "'without a single friend to aid her.' She started to crawl from her shelter with the intention of running after Anderson as fast as she could. As she drew the baby close to her, she glanced down into its little face. How red it was! How unnatural the little thing looked! She raised the cheek to hers. It was fiery hot with fever. With a little gasp of terror, Jane Clayton rose to her feet in the jungle path. The rifle and bandolier lay forgotten in the shelter beside her. Anderson was forgotten, and Rokoff. "'and her great peril. 
all that rioted through her fear-mad brain was the fearful fact that this little helpless child was stricken with the terrible jungle fever, and that she was helpless to do aught to allay its sufferings, sufferings that were sure to come during ensuing intervals of partial consciousness. Her one thought was to find someone who could help her, some woman who had had children of her own, and with the thought came recollection of the friendly village of which Anderson had spoken. If she could but reach it, in time! There was no time to be lost. Like a startled antelope she turned and fled up the trail in the direction Anderson had indicated. From far behind came the sudden shouting of men, the sound of shots, and then silence. She knew that Anderson had met the Russian. A half hour later she stumbled, exhausted, into a little thatched village. Instantly she was surrounded by men, women, and children. Eager, curious, excited natives plied her with a hundred questions, no one of which she could understand or answer. All that she could do was point tearfully at the baby, now wailing piteously in her arms, and repeat over and over, Fever! 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 The natives did not understand her words, but they saw the cause of her trouble, and soon a young woman had pulled her into a hut and with several others was doing her poor best to quiet the child and allay its agony. The witch-doctor came and built a little fire before the infant, upon which he boiled some strange concoction in a small earthen pot, making weird passes above it and mumbling strange, monotonous chants. Presently he dipped a zebra's tail into the brew, and with further mutterings and incantations sprinkled a few drops of the liquid over the baby's face. After he had gone, the women sat about and moaned and wailed until Jane thought that she should go mad. But, knowing that they were doing it all out of the kindness of their hearts, she endured the frightful waking nightmare of those awful hours in dumb and patient suffering. It must have been well toward midnight that she became conscious of a sudden commotion in the village. She heard the voices of the natives raised in controversy, but she could not understand the words. Presently she heard footsteps approaching the hut in which she squatted before a bright fire with the baby on her lap. The little thing lay very still now, its lids, half raised, showed the pupils horribly upturned. Jane Clayton looked into the little face with fear-haunted eyes. It was not her baby, not her flesh and blood, but how close, how dear the tiny, helpless thing had become to her. Her heart, bereft of its own, had gone out to this poor, little, nameless waif, and lavished upon it all the love that had been denied her during the long, bitter weeks of her captivity aboard the Kincaid. She saw that the end was near, and though she was terrified at contemplation of her loss, still she hoped that it would come quickly now and end the sufferings of the little victim. The footsteps she had heard without the hut now halted before the door. There was a whispered colloquy, and a moment later Maganmazam, chief of the tribe, entered. She had seen but little of him, as the women had taken her at hand almost as soon as she had entered the village. Maganmazam, she now saw, was an evil-appearing savage with every mark of brutal degeneracy writ large upon his bestial countenance. To Jane Clayton he looked more gorilla than human. He tried to converse with her, but without success, and finally he called to someone without. In answer to his summons, another native entered, a man of very different appearance from Maganmazam, so different, in fact, that Jane Clayton immediately decided that he was of another tribe. This man acted as interpreter, and almost from the first question that Magam was on put to her, Jane felt an intuitive conviction that the savage was attempting to draw information from her for some ulterior motive. She thought it strange that the fellow should so suddenly have become interested in her plans, 
and especially in her intended destination when her journey had been interrupted at his village. Seeing no reason for withholding the information, she told him the truth, but when he asked if she expected to meet her husband at the end of the trip, she shook her head negatively. Then he told her the purpose of his visit, talking through the interpreter. "'I have just learned,' he said, "'from some men who live by the side of the great water, "'that your husband followed you up the Ugambi for several marches "'when he was at last set upon by natives and killed. "'Therefore I have told you this "'that you might not waste your time in a long journey "'if you expected to meet your husband at the end of it, "'but instead could turn and retrace your steps to the coast.' "'Jane thanked Madame Mouzon for his kindness, "'though her heart was numb with suffering at this new blow. "'She who had suffered so much "'was at last beyond reach of the keenest of misery's pangs, "'for her senses were numbed and calloused. "'With bowed head she sat staring with unseen eyes "'upon the face of the baby in her lap. "'Magan Mouzon had left the hut. "'Some time later she heard a noise at the entrance. "'Another had entered.' One of the women sitting opposite her threw a faggot upon the dying embers of the fire between them. With a sudden flare it burst into renewed flame, lighting up the hut's interior as though by magic. The flame disclosed to Jane Clayton's horrified gaze that the baby was quite dead. How long it had been so, she could not guess. A choking lump rose to her throat. Her head drooped in silent misery upon the little bundle that she had caught suddenly to her breast. For a moment the silence of the hut was unbroken, Then the native woman broke into a hideous wail. A man coughed close before Jane Clayton and spoke her name. With a start, she raised her eyes to look into the sardonic countenance of Nicholas Rokoff. We'll return with chapters 13 and 14 next Sunday night at 6 p.m. Eastern Time. Until then, everyone, stay safe, and we'll be back soon with The Beasts of Tarzan. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware.